0: I'm 75 I went to a residential school in Moscow in na- 1941 to 1949 and I had a very very rough life I was mistreated in every way as a young girl she was seven-year-old she was pregnant and what they did she had her baby yet they, they took the baby wrapped it up in nice pink outfit took it downstairs. I was in the kitchen with the nuns who were cooking supper. They took the baby into the uh, what do you call that, where they make a fire and all that to heat up the school. Furnace room. They threw that little baby in there and burnt it alive. All you could hear was, Poof. that was it. You could smell the, the you know, the flesh cooking. Uh-uh. It's a big mistake when people say we were treated good. No way. There's a lot of things that happen in, in those boarding schools.
1: And welcome to Here We Stand. This is Kevin-Anne Strong Voice, your regular host, live here. It's November 19th, the voice of Irene Fable, a survivor of the Catholic death camp called a residential school in Musquegan, Saskatchewan. 1944 she was describing the incineration of a baby and of course the lead song farewell to the crown farewell to the power that authorized and caused and continues the genocide across canada one of the oldest along with the vatican one of the oldest and most murderous institutions in the world today on the show the verdict of the west coast common law court of justice that's been meeting convening really since may but the in deliberation looking at all the evidence against charles mountbatten windsor 41 other defendants in the case, and we're going to look today at the verdict. It's posted already online if you want to follow it, murderbydecree.com, under ITCCS Updates, just go to the latest posting there, you'll see, you can read along with that. There'll be more coming out this week about it. But today on the show, it's especially important that we get into this, and there's an urgent action announcement that's preceding this whole discussion today of the verdict and the sentence of the court, and how we all go about enforcing it. It's having to do with our co-host, Owen Lucas. He's a regular on the show. Just last week, he was arrested in England. On his way back to Ireland, he was arrested at Fishcard Ferry in Wales. He's being held without charges in Swansea Prison by Crown authorities. And he is facing um, a court trial in Haverford West in Wales on November 28th. But he's being held without charge as an administrative prisoner in Swansea Prison. Now, we are mobilizing people to go there and to create a stink and to protest at the prison. If you're in England or anywhere in the world, call the prison and demand that Owen Lucas be freed and that the, he be put in touch with all of us so that he can know that he's not alone. Our brother Owen Lucas, who's a leader of the Common Law Republic movement in Ireland and England and a co-host on the show, you can reach Swansea Prison and Governor Brian Ward at this number 001792485. Three zero zero. that's 01792485300, and there'll be more on that soon. If you want to learn more about that, write to us, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Well, for background for you folks who have or have not been following this whole thing, this court case you're going to hear about today, the verdict of the court, it was the West Coast Common Law Court of Justice convened under Common Law, the Law of Nations, May 1st, but it gathered it, uh, after issuing the first indictments against the 42 individuals who were charged and prosecuted. Uh, the indictment went out on September 20th and 22nd, and again, you can l- read those indictments at murderbydecree.com under ITCCS updates on those dates. And basically, the, there were two cases in in this um, in the trial. The first case has to do with the murder of three of my friends And indigenous activists who exposed the the residential school genocide, that was Harriet Nahani, William Coombs, and Johnny Bingo Dawson, and by association, Ricky Laballi, also killed. It had to do as well, the second case, with the murder of three other people, three members of my Port Alberni congregation, Mark Angus, Krista Lynn, and John Sargent, and the ongoing criminal assault and conspiracy against me, Kevin Anady, Go those were the two cases in the court docket. Now, um, just some background on that as well. Don't forget, the verdict of this case is now more ammunition in the banishment and reclamation campaign. And this is, of course, being what it's all part of. The uh, <coughs> banishment and reclamation campaign to expel the genocidal Catholic Anglican and United Churches and Crown Authority from anywhere in Canada. That's occurring as we speak, and this court case was part of that reclamation campaign. Really, all of Canada was sitting in the docket. All of us are convicted in a way of this for having contributed and being part of the criminal conspiracy known as Canada, but now there's a chance for all of us to step out of it within the sovereign republic of Canada, the alternative to this genocidal system. And... uh, the other thing that came out of this court case, and I hope uh, my voice bears up today because I've been actually struggling with a very serious asthma attack. Um, because the part of this court case is we've been traveling all over the West Coast. We've been meeting not only in Vancouver, we've gone to the site of mass graves, um, you know, all over the West Coast and uh, in, interviewing people on the ground. And it took a toll on my health, but God willing, this will. Hanging there today, my voice and the whole story, and it's important you get the story out, uh, that you rebroadcast this when it's posted um, tonight at bbsradio.com slash stand. Coming out of the court trial will be the fact that I will be applying for warrants from other courts to enforce the verdict that you're going to hear about today. Also, the indictments and the sentence and judgment in the court is going to be republished, and uh, in six different languages as part of the International Tribunal of Crimes of Church and State. And it will be used to apply for warrants in other courts to make the arrests against the people who were tried. Now, those include, the people in the docket were Charles Mountbatten-Windsor, so-called King Charles III, Jorge Bergoglio, a.k.a. Pope Francis, former Canadian Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, and other top officials who are going to be named today. And so... um, that's all important to keep in mind. So let me begin to read from that um, decision of the court, which again you can see online, murderbydecree.com, under the latest post in ITCCS updates. The West Coast Cominical Court of Justice has completed its six-month investigation and adjudication of criminal charges made against 42 people. This action was organized in two cases, adjudicated before the court, addressing the murder of three Indigenous activists in Vancouver and three Residents, along with the criminal conspiracy and assault against Kevin Annett. Of the 42 indicted persons, 39 did not respond to the court summons or issue pleas, nor did they contest the charges made against them, and thereby they admitted pro-confesso to their guilt. They were found automatically guilty under the law because they didn't contest what was being said about them. But this is significant. For the first time, three (coughs) of the indicted defendants did respond. They acknowledged the authority of our court and they pleaded not guilty. Now that's a very important breakthrough. Never in the past has anyone charged by our common law courts ever responded. But this time they did. In effect, these people are acknowledging the authority of the court and that gives an immediate standing under international law, even more so. Now the three people who pleaded not guilty were former United Church of Canada moderator Marion Best, who coordinated the coordinated the assault against me and our early movement, Catholic lawyer Ian Benson, who led the campaign against me and others on behalf of the United Church, and Dr. Elliot Weiss of St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, who ordered and was responsible for the medical murder of William Coombs on February 26, 2011. These actions by the defendants compelled the court to proceed with the trial and the prosecution's case in order to render a judgment. Accordingly, the the trial occurred for six weeks between Friday, September 29th and Friday, November 10th in the city of Vancouver and all over the West Coast. During that time, the prosecutor presented to the court the case against the defendants. Throughout the six-week trial, none of the defendants denied or contested or refuted the evidence issued against them by the prosecutor, and thereby they attested to this evidence and made it fact under law. So everything you're going to hear today is established fact. It's uncontested under the law. After a careful consideration and examination of the evidence, the court came to the judgments that follow. Convictions were issued against a majority majority of the defendants who are now felons under the law awaiting arrest or evading justice. The court's judgment includes its terms of enforcement to ensure that justice is performed. And some of the terms include the fact that any citizen, any deputized sheriff or police officer can... Make the arrest against these people, can surrender them to the court for the execution of sentence, and can seize their property and assets. And so here is a summary judgment of the court, the court's cases. And don't forget this is a lawful court of record with standing under international law, and its verdicts and sentences are universally enforceable, including by other courts. First of all, in the case involving the murder of Harriet Nahani. The offender, Jean Cretin, former Prime Minister of Canada, is guilty as charged of being personally responsible for ordering criminal assaults and black operations against Harriet Nahani and her associates during and after the summer of 1998 and of aiding and abetting her murder on February 24, 2007. Jean Cretin is guilty as charged, including because of his command responsibility as Prime Minister of Canada between 1993 and 2003. And as a result, Jean Chrétien is sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole, and his offices, authority, and assets are stripped from him. And in addition, he's immediately ordered to surrender all correspondence and evidence involving his, concerning his involvement in his crimes. And that applies to all of the uh, judgments you're going to hear. All of the, the offenders must surrender all of the evidence related to their crimes as part of the verdict. second offender Judge Brenda Brown of the British Columbia Supreme Court is found guilty as charged of the wrongful persecution, arrest, and imprisonment of Harriet Nahani and of complicity in her murder on February 24, 2007, and of obstructing and denying and delaying justice to victims of genocide in Canada. Therefore, the court sentences Judge Brenda Brown to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Third offender, Peter Montague Royal. Canadian Mounted Police Inspector. The court finds Peter Montague guilty as charged of being a chief conspirator and actor in the murder of Harriet Nahani on February 24, 2007, and of conducting the systematic black operation against Harriet Nahani and others. Peter Montague was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Fourth offender, James Craven, a covert operative of the RCMP. He is found guilty as charged of targeting, monitoring, harassing, and disrupting Harriet Nahoney's work and life as early as June 1998 and of complicity in her death. The court sentences James Craven to 25 years' imprisonment without the possibility of parole. The murder of William Arnold Coombs. First offender, Charles Mountbatten-Windsor, a.k.a. King Charles III of Great Britain. The court finds Charles Mountbatten-Windsor guilty as charged of being personally responsible for ordering the murder of William Arnold Coombs and of facilitating that murder on February 26, 2011. Because, as you remember, William Arnold Coombs has evidence against the abduction of children by King Charles's mother, Elizabeth Windsor. Charles Mountbatten-Windsor ordered his murder and bears responsibility for command responsibility as head of the Crown and Church of England. Therefore, the court sentences Charles Bound, Bound and Windsor to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole, and strips him of his title, office, and authority and assets. And that nullifies the so-called head of state of Canada, which has important political and personal repercussions on all of us. Second offender, Major Johnny Thompson of the Royal Regiment of Scotland, He is found guilty as charged of planning and executing the kill order against William Arnold Coombs issued by King Charles Mountbatten-Windsor. The court sentences Major Johnny Thompson to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Offender David Johnston, former Governor Governor General of Canada, personally complicit in the kill order against William Coombs, by failing to disclose his knowledge of the plan to kill him, he is sentenced to 25 years imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Offender William Elliott, former RCMP commissioner, the same verdict. He knew of the kill order against William and did nothing about it and aided in embedding it by ordering his arrest that brought him into St. Paul's Hospital. William Elliott, former RCMP commissioner, sentenced the 20 years imprisonment without the possibility of parole. And the same against Peter Montague, RCMP infector, uh, in, inspector, life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Dr. Elliot Weiss, St. Paul's Hospital, who planned and facilitated the medical murder of William Coombs in St. Paul's Hospital, found guilty of complicity in that murder, sentenced to 30 years' imprisonment. Offender Claire Thompson, chief coroner of British Columbia. Claire Thompson found guilty as charged of being personally complicit in the conspiracy to kill William Coombs by concealing his cause of death with false death records and of obstructing justice, Claire Thompson, chief coroner of British Columbia, sentenced to 10 years imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Offender Michael Miller, archbishop of the Roman Catholic Church in Vancouver, found guilty as charged of complicity in the murder of William Coombs, sentenced to life imprisonment. And offender Jorge Mary Bagoglio, chief officer of the Roman Catholic Church, a.k.a. Pope Francis, bishop of Rome, guilty of being personally complicit in ordering the medical murder of William Coombs, by way of Archbishop Michael Miller, Jorge Begoglio sends to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole and strips him of his title, office authority, and assets. Finally, the murder of Johnny Bingo Dawson. <clears throat> chief offender Jim Chu, former chief of the Vancouver Police Department, aided and abetted the murder of Johnny Bingo Dawson by three Vancouver police officers who beat him to death. Jim Chu is ordered to serve 25 years imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Offender Peter Montague, again, complicit in the death of Johnny Bingo Dawson, ordered to life imprisonment, That the third life imprisonment charge against Peter Montague, who is complicit in all of the deaths of these brothers. Offender Gary Patterson, former moderator of the United Church, Found guilty as charged of being directly and personally implicated in the murder of Johnny Bingo Dawson, including by identifying him to the offenders Peter Montague and Jim Chu as someone to be dealt with following Johnny Bingo Dawson's leading of an occupation at Gary Patterson's St. Andrew's Wesley United Church. Gary Patterson is found guilty as charged and sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. As is former moderator, United Church of Canada, uh, Martyr Tyndall. Who aided and abetted Gary Patterson in the murder of Johnny Bingo Dawson? Former United Church moderator Marty Tyndall, sentenced to 25 years imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Offender Matt Brown of the BC Coroner's Office, who fudged the records and issued fake death records about Johnny Bingo Dawson, found guilty as charged and sentenced to 10 years imprisonment without the possibility of parole. These are the uh, sentences against the killers of Harriet Nahani, Johnny Bingo Dawson, and William Coombs. In terms of the enforcement of the judgment of the court, based as it is on common law and the uh, the law of nations, the judgment of the court has universal jurisdiction and enforceability. Accordingly, the court empowers and authorizes its sheriffs, deputized police, and all people to enforce the court's verdicts and sentences by all lawful means armed with the attached warrants citizens may use reasonable force to arrest the convicted offenders named in this judgment and present them to the court for execution of their sentences citizens, uh, citizens may use these warrants to seize the offenders properties and assets which are forfeited under law as a avails of criminality this lawful right and obligation of community enforcement of the court's judgment is derived from the magna carta requirement that the people as a whole must actively defend their communities from criminality and disestablish any power endangering the people's safety and liberty. This inherent right exists a priori and does not require statute or authorization for any power, save that of the people and their sovereign will, assemblies, and courts. This community enforcement warrant will accompany the judgment. And therein ends the judgment of the first case in the docket, number one, in the matter of the murders of Harriet Nahani, William Coombs, and Johnny Bingo Dawson. Now, <coughs> excuse me, the second case in the docket, in the matter of the criminal conspiracy and assault against Kevin Annett and the murder of Mark Angus, Crystal Lynn, and John Sargent. It's much lengthier. It involves 25 defendants. So I'm not going to read out the entire judgment. You can read it online, like I mentioned com under ITCCS Updates, the uh, posting of November 20th, the latest posting. But there are some things I, w- I want to highlight. The uh, people found guilty have included Marion Best and Virginia Coleman, former moderator and general secretary of the United Church of Canada, both of whom coordinated the initial assault on my life, my uh, removal my firing from the United Church and blacklisting and the destruction ultimately, my family, my uh, livelihood, the robbing me of my children, and the Dana, my civil rights, public work in good name. They coordinated, it, and both of them were sentenced under by the court to 25 years imprisonment without the possibility of parole and to pay personal reparations to me. Other people in the named as part of that initial criminal conspiracy. Brian Thorpe, former CEO of the B.C. Conference of the United Church, uh, sentenced to 30 years imprisonment. John Jessiman, lawyer for the United Church, who coordinated the continual assault on me, my family, and others. 30 years imprisonment. John Kishore, former cabinet minister of the B.C. government. And I'm not going to read out all of the sentences, but uh, he, these people were instrumental in the whole criminal conspiracy. Working with my former wife, Ann McNamee, uh, to not only spy on me and to lead the divorce and to estrange my children from me, but also complicit in the murder of three of my parishioners, Mark Angus, Krista Lynn, and John Sargent. These were people who worked with me in port au All of them began to name the names of child traffickers in, in uh, port au They all died of so-called drug overdoses. when well, none of them did drugs. And all of them were targeted by these people who I've mentioned. They were um, spotlighted to the RCMP, and all these people subsequently died. So all of them were complicit in the murder of the three of our brothers and sisters in Port Alberni. Again, Peter Montague keeps turning up like a dirty sock. He coordinated the black ops against and killings of all of these people we're mentioning. Um, Phil Spencer, Foster Freed, local Presbytery officials... Ian Benson, the lawyer who led the assault against uh, me and others. All of these people found guilty and sentenced to 30 years imprisonment without the possibility of parole and the per- pain of personal reparations to not only me and my children, but to the estates of the other people who we've mentioned. The murdered um, mem- uh, members of my congregation, John Sergeant Mark Angus and Krista Lynn. And it goes on, the list goes on. I'm not going to read all of them, but it's interesting because it includes people like the former Attorney General and Premier of British Columbia, Ujel Dasanj, who not only refused to uh, intervene in the kangaroo court that threw me out of the church, but he then went on to attack anyone who challenged the verdict. And he also appointed the known child trafficker, Chief Ed John from the Carosa County Tribal Council, a known child rapist and trafficker. He named him as head of Minister of Children and Families in British Columbia. And so Joel DeSange, former Attorney General and Premier of B.C., is involved directly in eating and abetting child trafficking. For that reason, he was ordered by the court to stand, serve 30 years imprisonment without the possibility of parole. And uh, this also includes former masters and judges of the B.C. Supreme Court, annal uh, donald alan donaldson and ronald barber um Jean Chrétien, who we mentioned who personally authorized the black operations against me and others beginning after our tribunal in 1998 uh, offender domenico gianni head of the santa alianza which is the Vatican covert Age action agency and for folks you don't know coordinated two separate attacks and attempts on my life, including my chemical poisoning during the summer of um, 2021. Domenico Gianni acted at the direct orders of Jorge Begoglio pro Francis. And um, so, you know, this is the extent to which we're just we're disc- uh, of the crime that we're describing. So the details of that are found online, um, murderbydecree.com under ITC Safe Updates and um, under uh, the latest posting. And uh, the thing to remember is that, as we mentioned in the first case, all of these um, verdicts um, are actionable. They can be enforced by anyone. And in a final statement of the court, this is a very important, It's called an addendum to the court judgment. I just want to read it. Details of the covert operations against Kevin Annett's work. This is an addendum that the court judges felt it necessary to append because of the seriousness of it. Quoting from the court judgment The court has established as uncontested fact under the law that commencing in January 1995 and continuing to the present, Kevin Annett has been targeted by an ongoing multi million dollar misinformation and black operations campaign conducted by the United Church of Canada, E-Division of the RCMP, the Prime Minister of Canada's office, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, the Church and Crown of England, and the Vatican. Witness Grant Wakefield, a former Canadian Security Intelligence Service agent, describes this action as, quote, one of the largest and most sustained black operations ever mounted against an individual Canadian, unquote. Convicted offender Peter Montague, RCMP inspector, stated to RCMP operative James Craven in August 1998, take down Annette and you take down the issue of dead Indian kids. And to RCMP informant Amy Tellio in in the spring of 2008, quote, there will be no let-up against Annette as long as his protests continue, unquote. Therefore, the court has established that as part of this black operations campaign, Peter Montague and his agents spent in excess of $9 million dollars in the period from August 1998 to June 2004, to fund a preliminary discrediting campaign among potential supporters of Cameron Annett and his work. These payoffs targeted academics, aboriginal groups, journalists, and both right- and left-wing political movements and publications across Canada and America. Virtually every group that Annett had ever been associated with was paid to shun, misrepresent, and discredit him to others. In the words of Grant Wakefield, it wasn't only that people were paid to break ties with Kevin Annett. After he had been controversialized, nobody wanted to have anything to do with him. A permanent aura of fear was hung around him. Unquote. The smear and misinformation campaign against Kevin Annett never stopped, but grew with what it fed on under the aegis of Peter Montague and his church and state accomplices. The campaign extended to the internet and intensified after 2001 when Kevin Annett and Harriet Nahani launched their first independent truth commission into genocide in Canada. James Craven and his fellow RCMP operative Greg Renouf were funded to set up fake websites like Stop Kevin Annett that publicly trashed Annett's character and incited fear, hatred, and violence against him. Between 2000 and 2021, five separate community organizations established by Kevin Annett to confront child murder and genocide were infiltrated and destroyed from within by these black op methods. The court has established that some of the organizations that have received covert RCMP funding to attack and to discredit Kevin Annett include the following, the University of British Columbia Alma Mater Society and the UBC Student Newspaper, the Canadian Association of University Teachers, the Carnegie Center in Vancouver, The Native Youth Movement of Vancouver, the International Socialists, the New Democratic Party, the Communist Party of Canada, the Canadian Auto Workers Union, Canadian Dimension Magazine, Sojourners Magazine in Washington, D.C., Spartacus Books in Vancouver, Vancouver Co-op Radio, the the Downtown Eastside Residents Association of Vancouver, Action Canada, Unify the People, Druthers Newspaper, the NAV Student Newspaper on Vancouver Island University, and the Student Christian Movement, Enjoying a class, employing a classic bad-jacketing method of denigrating targ- a targeted individual through untraceable rumors, lies, and innuendo. This campaign against Kevin Annett portrayed him differently to various groups. To socialists, he was depicted as a right-winger, to conservatives as a communist, to Christians as a militant atheist out the churches, to natives as a Christian minister in trying to convert Indians, and to the media generally as a paranoid conspiracy theorist. According to witness Bill Curry, the Ottawa bureau chief of the Global Mail, and the reporter whose April 24, 2007 article confirmed Kevin Annett's claims of a 50% death rate among Indian residential school children, Most of his references to Kevin Annett were censored from the article because of government influence. In Bill Curry's own words, quote, At the time, the Globe and Mail planned to do a more extensive human interest piece about Kevin Annett and even run a review of his documentary film Unrepentant. But all that got canned because of official pressure. After my editor rewrote my article and removed most references to Kevin, he said that Kevin Annett was now on the Privy Council's shit list of untouchable people and his name was never to be mentioned again, unquote. Sure enough, any references to Kevin Annett's name and his work were permanently banned from all subsequent Canadian and eventually American media reports, especially those concerning the Indian residential school genocide. As under apartheid South Africa, Kevin Annett remains a banned person in Canada, an exile in his own country. He's been effectively erased from public memory, as has has, has his historic groundbreaking work that first exposed and eventually prosecuted crimes against humanity in Canada. Therefore, it's the responsibility of the law and of just people to restore that memory and honor the man whose courageous and unflagging witness has brought justice to the dead and hope to the living. Now, that's taken from the judgment of the court. I'll let that sit with you, and I'm going to rest my very tired voice. And for the next 15 minutes, we're going to play necessary background clips of history that's being erased, including the Existence of mass graves of children across Canada and other points. After those 15 minutes of clips, I'll be back for the conclusion. Thank you. It's been like this constant battle to keep the head above water about this whole story. Um, a big development in that was um, I was invited, and then I'll open this up again. I was invited in the spring of 2011 by 10 Mohawk elders in Brantford, to come and search for the remains of their family members. It was, it's the oldest residential school in Canada, the Mohawk school set up by the Anglican Church in 1832. Um, and so I sat down like I always did and listened to the people's stories of the survivors, and a lot of them began telling the same stories of children being buried at night. We went out, um, ground penetrating radar, we got two archeologists to come with us And sure enough, we found these, at the very site where people said they'd buried fellow students, we found this, a lot of dislocated soil. So we dug within an hour. And this was an accredited dig. I mean, there were archaeologists present. Bill and Cheryl Squire, two of the elders, were the first to open the ground. So it couldn't be said that this white guy came in and started digging, which is what APTN, how they portrayed it later. In the smear that happened. Um, But... um, the, uh, we found these bones, and Geronimo Henry, one of the survivors, said that whenever they, a child died, they would bury, bury them and then plant a tree on top to cover the remains. Well, sure enough, at the base of one of these old trees, small little tree, in the roots were these white buttons. And they weren't plastic, which means they're pre-World War II. And they were um, bone made out of bone and... Um, Wood and um, al- they look it looked like alabo- al- abalone, something like that, some other substance besides plastic. But um, a couple of these bones we had shipped off to the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, and a, a pathologist called Don Ortner. He's one of the world was one of the world's leading expert on detecting disease in bones, which is important because so many of the, these kids died of TB that's an important skill. He looked at this bone, He, I remember talking to him on the phone, he said 95% certain that's a young girl, socket bone, and uh, I'd like to come up. This is January 2012, he was dead in March. He died at 71 of a heart attack, go figure. But uh, after that, um, the the, the uh, they're called the Six Nations Confederacy, they're the government-funded chiefs. Bill Montour got called to Ottawa, and he was told to shut down this thing. So right away, the elders start dropping away. Rumor, this typical kind of thing, the rumor mill starts. Uh, they shut, the whole thing is shut down. And uh, subsequently, the Canadian media do report it. They never reported the actual discovery, they just reported the attacks on me. That's the only thing APTN ever said about the dig, is that this guy came in and started digging, and all the Mohawk elders are upset with him. That was it. But that's the only media evidence there is of what happened. At the time this Mountie threatened me, uh, Peter Montague, he's head of E-Division uh, Secret Ops, they call it, Black Ops, whatever. Um, he actually... These guys are funny, you know, because they think they're God and they can't be touched, so they like to boast to you about what they're going to do to you and what they can do and everything. So Montague said to me that um, you're you're not only never going to work in this country again, but nobody's ever going to know, no one's going to remember your name after 10 years. And it's interesting he said that because sure enough, when up to July 8, 2008, I was quoted in the Globe and Mail, I was on the, because I was the only, what we were doing, we were the only people talking about it. Even the native people didn't want to talk about mass graves. You could talk about physical and sexual abuse. Right, And the language is very important because it's all designed to soften the impact. They don't talk about murder, rape, torture. They talk about abuse and being estranged from their families. And, you know, all the soft language. Um, But after July 8, 2008, that's when the apology happened. The official apology. You might have remembered Stephen Harper stood up in Parliament and didn't apologize for genocide, but uh, other things. Like taking children from their families and that. Uh, after that date, my name was swabbed out of the media. You'd never see it again. I was, like in apartheid South Africa, they w- when you're banned, your name could never be mentioned in the media. It's why the South Africans came to Canada to set up their apartheid laws. They just studied what we did on the Indian reservations and with the Indian Act and modeled the apartheid laws on on Canada. Um, and so the same thing happened here. I was banned, I was being a banned person. and. This generation, when you mention my name, they say, "No, I, who's Kevin Anna?" Right? Like it's it's very effective now, especially with the internet, to be able to either castigate and smear somebody or just bury their memory. And that's why these events are so important because it's keeping alive not even the memory of me, but what we brought out, what we forced, the change we forced. Because if you don't remember these things, they happen. They'll happen again, again and again and again.
2: Right? I admire your extraordinary bravery to say because you could be. Pretty easily snuffed out, and not a lot of people would be inquiring about it, right? Probably not. So, um, well, you sort of just answered the question in that you said, if you're, if you're, if you're, uh, if you have a firm conviction about something and it's the truth, that kind of what keeps you going, but really like what keeps you what keeps you going <laughs> in light of the fact that you're vilified and you're blacklisted and you and people say terrible things and you're constantly getting bad news about this is being shut down and that you know and then ah right. uh, i don't know how you do it i don't know how you do it i
1: don't know how you do it when i was uh, 31 uh, the short answer is i don't know either <laughs> i i just know I, it's the right thing to do and I'm pissed off what they've done to my family, what they did to me and my children, what they stole from me, for no reason other than I was talking about their dirty laundry, which they eventually had to admit themselves, right? Where the hell did they get away doing that? And all those kids on the ground. And patting themselves on the back because they, they, they said the right words now. I mean, it's partly that. But I remember, um, this is very deja vu. When I was uh, 31, I was in seminary. I went on a fact-finding tour to the Guatemalan refugee camps on the border of Guatemala, Mexico. These are people who are refugees from the Civil War there. Uh, horrible stuff. And um, I was taken into the camp by a guy called Brother Fidel. He was an ex-Catholic priest who had been booted out by the bishop because he was getting too close to the Indians. Kind of like deja vu for me, right? And um, too much like Jesus, right? Kind of. According uh, the Bible, too much. But anyway, so he was living among these refugees, right? And the Guatemala arm, Guatemalan army kept raiding across the border and killing people all the time. And kids were dying every day from malnutrition, typhus, dysentery, the whole bit, rickets, kids running around blind. You know, nightmare. But these people were the happiest. Those children and those people. They had a love I've never seen before anywhere. And when I came back to Canada, I felt it was barren. I felt like I'd come back to a dead zone because I I didn't find people who were devoted to each other. They would die for each other, and they did all the time because they had nothing else. They didn't have the buffers. They only had each other. And I remember I said to Fidel one night, I said, uh, which means faithful, I said, um, don't you ever get scared like what you're asking me now, right? And that was on the other side of the veil I had to go through myself, that when you go through a testing, you say, hey, I did it. I'm stronger than I realize. I'm braver than I realize. We all go through that. You know, when we've been through, we discover that warrior in ourself, right? You can't, nobody can do it for you. You've got to find it on your own. But I said to him, don't you get scared? And he said, yeah. And he said, I got on my Land Rover and drove away once. I got in my Land Rover and drove away once from the refugee camp. And then I came back and I said, so what brought you back? He said, well, whenever I get scared, I go to the the, uh, poorest child in the camp and I just look at her and I realize she can't get away. And she gives me the courage to last another day. And that's my friends who died. Okay, that's Harry Wilson these people are all killed by, he was killed by the Vancouver police, beaten. Bingo Dawson. Uh, he, these people are all part of our movement in Vancouver. They're all targeted after we started occupying churches. They're all just killed. Ricky saw that he ended up dead. William Coombs, you know this one. William was the one who saw Queen Elizabeth take those kids. Erica Kelly, the nurse who treated him, said it was arsenic poisoning. We've got that testimony from her. She's going to testify at the tribunal as well in September. All the classic symptoms of arsenic poisoning. He dies suddenly. He's about to come to London to give testimony. He's called in the Mounties, bring him to St. Paul's Hospital, Catholic Hospital, and he's dead in 48 hours. So these these are my brothers, sisters, right? They keep me going every day. So does amazing, right? Because you find out you're, you're bigger than yourself, right? I mean, exactly. It's for all of them, for all of us. And... We, we find that among ourselves, and I just want to, before I get to you, uh, another beautiful story about William. They used to hold him at the Kamloops and Mission Catholic schools. They had him on a rack at night, like a rack, and the priest would sodomize him with a cattle prod, right? Because he was a spirit dancer. He was a spirit dancer, and they would target the traditionalists, the ones with the sacred knowledge and the... Okay, they would destroy them, that was the whole point. So they really targeted William. And um, he couldn't even go near a Catholic church. He couldn't hear the sound of a church bell. He'd start getting sick, right? So we go into Holy Rosary Cathedral one morning. There's about 50 of us, I'm the only white guy there. We show up and normally the cops and the knights at Columbus are surrounding the church to keep us out, right? Nobody there that morning. And the doors are standing wide open. (laughs) So I say to everybody, you know, this is a sign. We've got to go. So we walk in to the cathedral during the mass, and we got our banner. All the children need a proper burial, right? And we stand at the front of the cathedral, and everyone is just gobsmacked. They don't know what to do, right? The people in the pews are kind of interested, right? And the priest is freaking out. He gets the organist to keep playing to drown us out, right? And people are kind of wondering what's going on, and and the priest is getting – he's turning red. He's just so hate-filled, right? And he comes over to me and he, he actually gets me in an arm lock, this priest. And he said, we're, we're asking you to leave. And I said, we've asked you where you buried the children you killed. And he goes, Prah! and he walks off. He just leaves, right? And so we're just standing there with the banner and the people are just don't know what to do. And I'm looking out and there in the pews is William. He's got these flyers, and he's handing them out to people with this big smile on his face. He said, holy shit, like, William. <laughs> and we, the, the, the elders start drumming They kind of sense when the cops were coming, so we walk out. And as we walk out, everybody stands up. That Catholic population there, you know, they all stand up. This, they knew the right thing to do, right? So we get out there, and everyone's so happy, right? And the the cop comes running up, lumbering up, and he he said, "You can't go in there." I said, "Well, I already did. Sorry, you should get here quicker next time, right?" And I said, "By by the way, read this," and I gave him a leaflet, right? But and um, so I go over to William, man, and we're hugging, and I say, "William, what gifts? <laughs> like, how did you do that?" And he said, um, "I I saw you going in, and I I didn't want to let you down. Right? And uh, I realized then, the way we all heal, we do it together. You know, you don't do... He he went to counseling for 20 years, didn't do a thing for him. That one day, and he stopped drinking that week. It came back, it only lasted a couple of weeks, but he stopped drinking. And that's, if you knew William, what a miracle that was. But it was a miracle only as complex as the fact that we... Did it together we he said i don 't have to be afraid of those priests anymore. I went in and just see they're just people, and like the the institutional mask falls away, and we just see they're just people right and so if you t- ask me how I get the courage, that's part of it, but there's an unknown part that I can't explain, and I think it's it's finding who we really are. you know I've had more things open up for me inside since then as a result that have answered that more for me about why I have that ability I never knew I had, but you find it. And you go through, my worst pain was losing my daughters, right? That's why I got accepted in the healing circle. They saw I was suffering and bleeding. I wasn't the do-gooder coming to fix them, right? I was just their equal in our pain. But we weren't afraid to talk about the pain. And that's hard in Canada to do that, you know? Uh,
2: Oh yeah, oh yeah. And we're back, and
1: uh, so much there. But, you know, what comes to mind in the last few minutes, I want to share this, that uh, I'm thinking right now, Owen Lucas sitting in that prison in solitary, and one of the reasons he's being stuck away there is because he spoke openly on his show and to others about the guilt of so-called King Charles, issuing the kill order to kill William Coombs. He talked openly about it, and he's paying the price now. And... You know, I never worry about when people say, don't you worry? No, of course I don't. Because when you're in your purpose, you're not afraid of what might happen to you. What the fear is, is what's going to happen if we don't act? You know, what is it going to do not only to that kid who's going to die tomorrow, but what's it going to do to us inside? How we're going to die inside if we continue to live alongside all this bullshit. And I don't mean by that the way you fight it is by reading about stuff on the internet. Because... I'd like to know where the hell everyone is. When we're doing our court case, we were in around the province. We tried to hold events and actions at churches. Nobody, nobody in sight. The response level now is zero. It used to be somewhat. Now it's gone. It's vanished. It's like the whole human race on certain issues and certain people are being lobotomized. They're not capable of responding anymore. And. Uh, <clears throat> This is not discouraging me because I see it as part of the judgment. You know, the judgment today I read you of the judgment of the West Coast Common Law Court of Justice. We know it's not going to be acted on. We know people aren't going to enforce the verdict any more than they have in the past. The power is in our hands now. Under Magna Carta, Section 61, anyone in any Commonwealth country can take the whole country back when the king commits crimes. But nobody will because we're part of the sickness. You can't fight something that you're part of. We haven't broken from it. And so the judgment is on all of us. And the collapse of everything you see around you is necessary. It's a good thing. For many years, I, you know, because of my own background and hopes and my overly optimistic nature, I tended to do that. I tended to almost look for ways for people to avoid the consequences of their own actions. Yeah, okay, you paid taxes and you funded these crimes and you looked the other way and everything, but there's still a way out for you. You can join the Republic of Canada, right? And the point is, that's the wrong approach. Judgment has to come because all of us, individually and as people, must face the consequences of what we've done and what we haven't done. And I've sure as hell faced it in my life. And we all have to face that. So Let's pray for things to come down. Let's pray for things to get a lot worse because that's the only thing that awakens people to what they have to do. And I'm not talking about awake. People talk about being awake all the time. And I say, yeah, maybe you're awake, but you're still lying in bed with the beast. It's not your condition of awakeness that's the issue. It's what you do every day with your body. And that means being there. Shutting down these churches, reclaiming them, banishment and reclamation orders from all the elders across Canada and around the world gives us the right to seize it now. And this latest court verdict reaffirms that. It's more ammunition than our gun. The question now is, when are we going to act? And the ball's in your court, because if we don't, you know what the future holds for all of us. And maybe it's necessary. Maybe uh, our time as a culture is meant to come down, because that's the judgment on all of us. I don't know. I'm not God. I just know God and go on what I see and experience. And so this is an appeal, again, to all of you who may not respond, but hopefully will act on what you've heard today. Angelfire101 at ProtonMail.com is a way to reach me. MurderbyDecree.com under ITCCS updates. Take that posting of the verdict and sentence today and get it out all over. And most importantly, act on it. The warrants are going to be posted soon that will give you the right to help us arrest these individuals, seize their property and assets, and learn more. Learn more at murderbydecree.com, republicofcanada.org as some alternatives. And uh, I would just say it's kind of ironic because Advent is coming up, the, Christ- the season of Christmas that all the Christians celebrate <clears throat> ironically, because one of the most basic stories in the Advent lectionary is how it all started, the Bethlehem narrative. It starts with the mass murder of children. King Herod is paranoid that he hears a Messiah has been born, so he orders the firstborn of all uh, the land to be slaughtered. And... You know, the Christmas story begins in genocide, in mass murder. That's a message to all of us. It's right at our doorstep, and we can talk about healing and reconciliation all we want. We can get on the bandwagon now of denying that mass graves even exist, as all these government-front so-called alternative media are espousing, ignoring all of the hard evidence and 25 years of, of evidence and, and action that we've taken on this. They want you to be equally lobotomized and forget your own history and forget the reality. Don't let it happen. Write to us, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. It could be you next, and it will be you next, if you don't act now. Join this campaign to reclaim ourselves and to come to life for the first time, because that's how I came alive, by dying, by having my old life ripped away. That's the quickest way to be born into what's really new, our real personality, our real purpose. And that's why our brothers who are dead are not dead. They're still with me now. That's why... Owen Lucas in prison, he's not in prison. He's more free than all those prison guards and everybody else around him in society, as I am. So we invite you to join us in this death and rebirth. AngelFire101 at ProtonMail.com. We're going to go out on a song by, which I hope will inspire you, um, Judy Collins from the 60s. It's called Carry It On. And um, a final note on that, that um, next week and in the weeks to come, we're going to be on the road following up on this verdict, making the arrests, seizing the assets and properties of these criminals, and we're going to face a consequence. We're going to be under a major attack. You may not hear from me again, ever, but that's part of the price you pay, and it's a price I'm quite willing to, to, to do, rather than to live in this walking desk that people call a safe life. Maybe you're one of those people who can't live like that anymore, and if so, I in, all the more reason for you to join us and to take up arms with us because this is a battle to the death, the death death of our people and our species. That's what's at, at stake here. So I hope this song inspires you. I hope everything you've heard today inspires you to know that they can't beat us once we're united. Once you're like those folks in the Guatemalan refugee camp, they look past death. They had each other. They had their spirit that couldn't be killed, their indigenous spirit. And so it didn't matter what happened to them physically. They survived. And I hope you take that to heart today, folks. This is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. Again, write to me, Angelfire101 at com to get on board. Stand by next week for more. Hopefully there'll be more next week. If not, I pass on the torch to you. This is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. Carry it on.
3: In me talking there's a To bite our bodies They will lock us in prison Carry it on can't go on any longer take the hand held by your brother every victory